email last week with a link from one of the kids, and they said, you have to watch this. It was a link taking me into Netflix, and it was a story of what is now known as the Tinder, the Tinder Swindler, excuse me. If you haven't seen it, you might want to see it. And it uh, tells a story, a heartbreaking, twisted story of someone who uses the platform of a dating app to exploit women out of money. I'm not going to blow the punchline for you. There's lots of elements to the story. But for our purposes this morning, the most intriguing, provocative storyline in this documentary is the fact that the accused is Israeli and Jewish. And his background story is also a formidable part of the documentary, and I'm not going to ruin that for you as well. Anyways, after watching it, Lisa, my wife, says to me, I wonder if this is going to lead to an explosion of anti-Semitism in Europe, to which I said to her, I think it already happened. That having been said, her instinct, and mine too, that when you see a Jew in the midst of some kind of corrupted criminal enterprise, I suspect that we all have the same question. And the question ultimately emerges is, is this bad for the Jews? Back a number of decades, I was 11 years old. It was 1977. Now historically, it is known as the Summer of Sam, which was uh, the summer, a period over the summer, where a serial killer known as, now known as the Son of Sam terrorized New York City, shooting people in cars, particularly young women. And later on, he was captured through a weird series of incidental events. And uh, his name was released as being David Berkowitz. And all the Jews in New York held their breath. Oy vey, a Jew. And so once again, the question was, is this bad for the Jews? Or alternatively, is it good for the Jews? which unquestionably as well echoed this week. The events in Ukraine with Russia, little Israel found itself smack dab in the middle of this international conflagration. Why? Because both the United States and Russia repeatedly revealed in Israeli media sources, the United States, Russia, and Ukraine were both imploring Israel to speak to all the sides. The Russians called the Israelis in, yelling at them, how could you condemn what we're doing? Speak to the Americans and the Ukrainians. The Americans reach out to the Israelis to speak to the Russians, which is a familiar position to those, to those who know Jewish history, because Israel, both in its ancient form and in its current modern form, has always been in the place between superpowers. In ancient, ancient biblical Israel, it was between Egypt and the Babylonian Assyrian empires. Later on, it was between the uh, former Greek empire and the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians and the Romans. goes on and on. Some people wonder what Putin is after. And they muse to consider that he's looking in a revanchist attempt 
to, re to resurrect, reconstruct the Soviet empire. But if you read closely, you know now that that is not, in fact, what is interested in happening. What the aim of this war is, by and large, is to unite all the Slavic-speaking people into a single entity. This idea is not at all unusual or bizarre to be found in the world. Poland says the same thing. The same thing as well for Viktor Urban in Hungary. In Turkey as well, Erdogan says the very same thing about expanding their space, creating safe haven for their ethnic identity. It is also not surprising to us, it seems to me, that both in Hungary and in particular Vladimir Putin is well-renowned for keeping ultra-Orthodox sects, particularly the Chabad, very close to him. To which you would ask yourself, is this good or bad for the Jews? There's a sinister reality to be found beneath this. And I want to pull it back and reveal it for you. The sinister reality that works underneath all of this is a particular theory. It is the theory of what we would understand as being ethnic electiveness. Ethnic electivity or electiveness says that there are ethnic identities that are superior to the others, or that there are ethnic identities that need to be preserved by all means, that ethnic identities need to be maintained and separated. One of the reasons why, both in Poland and in Hungary and in Russia, that these autocratic leaders keep ultra-Orthodox symbols very close to them, Jewish ones, is in part because it embraces hard, hardened ethnic identity. There is nothing more foreign, it seems to me, to a Jewish identity than the idea of ethnic electiveness or hardened ethnic identities. In fact, Jews tend to survive and in fact thrive in societies where there is a melting pot of a mixture of ethnic identities. In fact, remind yourselves, go no further than Israel. If you want to find the place of a bewildering mix of ethnic identities, go to Israel, where there is an incredible rainbow of identities of people whose religious identity is Jewish, but their ethnic identity runs all the way from Ethiopian Jews all the way to Jews from the Caucasian area. The sense that of this ethnic hardened identities is bad for us. Because when you look at the places where Jews have succeeded the most, it is not in those kinds of places. Because ultimately what these hardened ethnic identities, the places where they happen, is that they ultimately become places that are homogenous. That you could only think and believe in one way. And one of the ways that you create a homogenous society is by creating an identity of things that you should not be. 
And so in the Soviet Union, the Jews were persecuted and mitigated and subjugated because they were considered to be the people that you should not be. And the perpetuation of these hardened ethnic identities, now resurgent in certain parts of Europe, is, in my mind, deeply connected to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe. And in fact, as I said to you before, nothing is more foreign to great Jewish thought than the sense of homogenous ethnic identities. In fact, I would say to you, not to look any further than what we read in the Torah portion this morning. This Torah portion, by the way, is amongst or getting very close to the conclusion of the second book of the Torah, that being the book of Exodus. It recounts for us, if you paid attention to it, I know it's a little bit tedious, about the extensive work that was done to build and construct the portable tabernacle that the Israelites wandered in over the course of their 40 years in the desert. Afterwards, this portable tabernacle would be replaced by Solomon's temple. And that's one of the reasons why that on Shabbat, the Haftorah that we usually read, unless it's a Shabbat like today, which is a special Shabbat, Shabbat Shkalim, is also taken about the story of Solomon building the temple. In the text of the Torah commanding us to build this portable tabernacle, we hear these words. God commands Moses to say, build me a sanctuary that I can live in your midst. And almost immediately after those words come, rabbinic and Jewish tradition is filled with question. Questions such as, how could it be that the God from Genesis, who creates the entire universe, needs a house to live in? How could it be that this God that fills all of creation would swap the stars, one commentator says, would swap the stars, the heavens, for a seat on this earth? And so lots of different answers come into the question. It is, I would submit to you, an important question to ask. Like, why build a tabernacle or a temple to God? Because if God is God, well, then God is God. And God doesn't need such a place. Some people turn around and say, throughout legions of rabbinic answers to this question, some of them say, well, the, uh, this tabernacle and this temple wasn't really for God. It was for us. That we would have an ever-present symbol of God's presence on this earth. Other people suggest to say, later psychologists and sociologists, that, that since religion is a creation of the human mind, how natural it would be for humans to build a place to symbolize God's presence on earth. But I want to submit to you that there's another deeper reason behind it. Because at the first blink, you could say that the command that Moses hears by God to build a tabernacle and then a temple so that God can dwell in our midst would be a particularistic idea, meaning that God dwells amongst the Jews. And only with the Jews. But rabbinic tradition leaps from that moment 
and they jump into the universal. They go on to say that when you look carefully at the construction of the tabernacle and then the temple, we see signs that is profoundly universal. For example, this window over here, the second one, is the image of the high priest. They say that his, the symbols of the things that he wears, which are also to be found in the construction of the temple itself, that there are linen garments, that there is red silk, there is a blue tunic, there is a deep blue, almost near purple sash. They say that those things represent the earth, fire and the earth, the linen, the water and the sky. The ancient rabbis go to say that the menorah that it was in the temple and in our synagogues to this very day, on one hand may represent the seven days of the creation of the universe. But the Kabbalah, the Zohar, comes in to say something else. That each of those seven candelabra, they represent one of each of the planets in our galaxy. In other words, that the temple was built to remind ourselves of the great universal existence that we find ourselves in. And lest you think, my friends, that this is some fanciful rabbinic trip far from the intended meaning of the verse when God commands to build a temple that it can dwell in, at the very conclusion when the when the portable tabernacle is built, the near same thing happens when Solomon builds the temple. We read that the cloud of God descends upon the building and Moses was unable to enter it because it was too heavy. Moses couldn't go in. The people were shut out. The idea, of course, is one of the great Jewish messages to the world is that while we may deduce our beliefs into different traditions, the point of religion is not to make us more Jewish or more Catholic or more Muslim. The point of religion is to make you more human. And that's why hardened ethnic identities, the resurgence of it that we find particularly in Europe, it's bad for the Jews. And by the way, it's bad for humans. One last note. On Friday, there was an Israeli's, Israeli reporter who's embedded in Kiev, not surprisingly, because uh, there's not a small number of Ukrainians who live in Israel. And he tweeted out a photograph of the president of Ukraine his name, as you probably know, was Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky is a Jew. He was wearing, um, I guess, not formal military wear, but kind of like battle dress. And he had a helmet that was made in Israel. And there was a small, a small message attached to the photograph. And it said, on this Shabbat, pray for Vladimir Ben-Rina. That's his mother's name. There are people living in great danger, not just Jews, but many, many people, the elderly, the sick, young children, that the neonatal 
that the neonatal intensive care unit in Kiev, that the children, the babies in those incubators had to be taken out and brought into basement. These are harrowing, difficult times, and people are in grave danger. And our prayers should be directed that people should remember as well.